Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to The Dworkin Report. I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today on the show, we've got part two of our investigative series about Donald Trump Jr.'s ties to Russia. During the 2016 election, while working for the Democratic Coalition, I discovered a video of him in Riga, Latvia, saying that he did a lot of business in Russia and traveled there frequently. And that spawned a two-year-long investigation into his numerous trips to Moscow and their impact on the Trump Organization's finances. Trump Jr. was the keynote speaker at a Russian real estate conference back in 2008, and less than 45 days later, his daddy Donald sold the huge, beautiful, spectacular, amazingly bigly house to a Russian oligarch, but never brags about selling it. That oligarch, Dmitry Ribolovlev, was spotted flying into airports where the Trump campaign had stops in 2016, but nobody has ever explained why. In this installment, we discussed the context of Donald Trump Jr.'s visit to Moscow and how the $100 million single-family home sale that his father, ever the braggart, never wants to talk about happened chronologically, followed by his statement that, quote-unquote, in terms of high-end product influx into the U.S., Russians make up a pretty disproportionate cross-section of a lot of our assets, end quote. The story also sheds light on Trump Jr.'s ties to a mobbed-up hotel deal in Manhattan that collapsed spectacularly and highlight an incident that should have resulted in criminal prosecution for Don Jr. and Ivanka, but didn't, all during the time period of June through November 2009. So here's part two of our Dworkin Report investigation into Donald Trump Jr. with Grant Stern. In part one of our investigation into Donald Trump Jr., Grant Stern and I dug into the fact that he was a keynote speaker at a Russian real estate conference in June of 2008. Now, we're presenting part two of our investigation into Donald Trump Jr. Joining me now, Grant Stern. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Scott? Doing wonderful. Um, So let's get into it. Uh, There was a house for sale in Florida. Trump scooped it up. Uh, Can you tell me... Who, who he bought it from and for how much? So Donald Trump bought that house uh, for about 50 million bucks, and it pretty much died on the market, all right? And the house actually has a name. It's called Maison d'Amity, the, the house of friendship. And this house was basically dead on the market. A Russian oligarch came along, a, name, a man by the name of Dmitry Rybavlev, and he bought the house for $100 million. And the reason why it's important that Don Jr. went to Moscow in early June of 2008 is that this deal closed in the middle of July of 2008. So you're talking about a financial crash that's happening. 
that's affecting the Trumps, and it's happening because of real estate, right? The real estate drove this crash, and here you have in the middle of the worst housing panic since the Great Depression, and somebody comes in and buys this big house for twice what it's worth. A month Donald later, Trump. a month after they probably met or he met an associate. Barely a month after the, the conference. And, you know, the typical real estate deal closes in 30 days. Like, it seems pretty obvious that Don Jr. maybe went there to close the deal, the sale, and then they closed it at some point, a few, you know, 30, 35 days after that appearance. And if you recall, the famous report, Don Jr. says a lot of our assets are Russian, and I think that's what he meant. So Trump sold this this house that he had bought for of a, a, a value to a Russian oligarch uh, close to Putin. Who is this Russian oligarch that uh, Trump sold the house to? Well, Dmitry Rubavlev is known as the Fertilizer King. He was also one of the major investors in the Bank of Cyprus. Uh, that's a bank that failed and required a huge bailout. And Trump's current Commerce Secretary went and took a job there. Actually, that's one of the Trump leaks that we reported in December of 2016, where we noted that the former chairman of Deutsche Bank, who uh, paid a massive fine for being involved in Russian money laundering, went down to the Bank of Cyprus as well. So, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of connect there, right? You know, this Rubavlev was going through a divorce at the time. And one of the things that really struck me as suspicious um, was in the Palm Beach Post, right? They quoted uh, a longtime Palm Beach accountant named Richard Rampel as saying that the property of the North was owned by financier Nelson Peltz, and he had an asking price of $75 million. It was a bigger piece of property, and he'd been unable to sell it, and then all of a sudden the Russian comes by and pays $20 million more. He thought it was very suspicious. Um, you know, the oligarch... I mean, who it is is not so important as just where he's coming from and why he probably did that. In the end, he knocked the house down, separated into multiple lots, and sold off the lots. But he still hasn't even gotten his money out by doing that. So it's a great point that they raised in the Palm Beach Post. Uh, how much? Why? Why is there such a big difference? What What is the difference again? It's a uh, hundred million is what he sold it for, and uh, what he had bought it he, for was fifty or something like that. Yeah. He he, pretty much doubled his money. Why that difference? Why that difference in such a short period of time for Trump flipping it? Well, you know, we don't know all the details. Um, the The Senate Finance Committee's ranking member has been sending out demand letters to the Treasury Department asking for their suspicious activity reports on this, and that's really how uh, how it came to my attention. That's one of the reasons I started writing about it, um, but. <laughs> We just don't know. It seems on its face like it could be money laundering because here you have an asset with a value that's difficult to determine. And Trump was obviously in a pinch and needed the money. And within six months of then, Trump was actually in foreclosure with Deutsche Bank because he had a huge loan on the property in Chicago and he went into default and he wound up suing Deutsche Bank because they were going to foreclose on him. And that leads to kind of my theory with uh, where the money from the house came and, you know, why it came and where it went to. 
And what what is that theory? Oh, that oh the, the theory of the um from the month of of being in Russia. So if he well, had a well, it's it, you know I mean it, it's it's one of these crazy things that Mother Jones reported on uh, back in February of last year. Uh, Donald Trump's mystery fifteen million or more loan, and it's odd because Donald Trump owns a loan that he's obligated in himself. Very strange when it comes to an accounting thing. Um, Russ Choma wrote about it. And my theory is that Trump used this offshore money to buy out his loan guarantee to Deutsche Bank because he must have seen that he was going to default and pretty much planned to make this his get out of default because he he had to pay the bank a $40 million uh, personal guarantee from that transaction. And it happened just six months later. So, I mean, it's just it's important to see the the calendar in these things, because without looking at the calendar, it's tough to understand why they take these actions. It's just like a collection of actions. But when you see the transactions and the problems and what they're facing, it makes a lot more sense. So when when someone makes a purchase of that size, can you explain for the listeners exactly how money laundering works in this case, which is the purchase of a home? Um, you know, he he buys it, and then what happens to that money or, you know, even just uh, allegedly um, you know, what would happen that money to define money laundering and why is that illegal? Well, the the point of money laundering is to take money from countries where it's not stable or, you know, to move it illegally. Like typically, you know, money laundering is always illegally moved. Um, but it's, you know, in this case, they're laundering money out of Russia to keep it safe from Putin. So they're willing to take a discount. And also a lot of times... Whoever's participating in this kind of transaction gives a kickback. So, you know, you say you took in $100 million, but some of that gets diverted somewhere else, and that's in hiding or clean money. There's all sorts of reasons why people want to hide money, and that's what money laundering essentially is, is trying to take dirty money, so to speak, and turn it into clean money. So maybe it's money that's been stashed offshore by an oligarch, and they can't really spend it anywhere else. And they say, well, here, just take my bank book at the Bank of Cyprus here, and now I own your house. And you you don't necessarily have to transact everything through the American banking system to do a real estate deal. You just have to file the deed. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. If it's such a big sale, why isn't Trump bragging about this at a constant? I mean, I I would assume that this is one of the biggest home sales in the country ever. Um, Why is he not talking about this? I made the best sale. I made the biggest sale ever. Well, you know, that's a great question, isn't it? Like, yeah. you're talking about somebody who brags about literally anything that goes right, right? Right. You know, the Senate is investigating this. And right. what's happened is, this is like a oddity of the way the banking system works, okay? So as, as somebody who's, like, steeped in this, I can explain it in English without making you fall asleep. I promise. Right. You promise to stay awake? Yes, I will. <laughs> I will. No, okay. uh, listeners, stay, stay alert as Grant uh, is, is about to give it, give it to you tough. All right, go go okay, ahead, Grant. So, Lay it down. Lay it down. So, banks are supposed to file these suspicious activity reports. They call them SARS. Okay, in other words, 
Like whenever something fishy happens at the bank, they have to notify the government. And they file a report, and then the report goes into a central repository forever. And then if the police or the financial intelligence unit at the Treasury or the FBI or whomever is looking for this information, then they can access it, right? But what happens also is that the requirement to file one of these things it gets triggered 30 days after the bank knows something has happened. So, like, this deal happened in 2008, but sometime in the last couple of years, the banks were notified, hey, this is suspicious. It was in the newspaper, for example. Now you know there was something going on here. Those banks then went back and flagged some of their transactions related to this as suspicious. And that's what the Senate is looking for right now. Um... You know, I actually emailed committee staff and and they did get back to me that they're still, you know, they're still looking for it even this summer. And there was a press release, actually. Um, the Senate Finance Committee made a press release on July 23rd. Uh, they said that that they've been looking for information on Butina and Torsion. And they also were asking for this other stuff. Wow. You know, See, there's nothing <laughs> boring there. There's nothing that I would fall asleep for for their grant. Um, and and the, well. so what do you think? What do you think? What do you, do you think he laundered money personally? Like, what do you, what would you assume if you had to guess, if you had to guess? If I had to guess, I would say that Donald Trump Jr. went over there and helped cut the deal or get the deal signed in person and couriered the paperwork because a hundred million dollar deal is not something that you necessarily, you know, do by, by fax and by email. Um, especially in 2008, you know, 2008, people still used facts. Right. Um, that's the kind of thing you go out there and you, you know, put in some FaceTime. And to me, the, the timeline of it seems very obvious in the sense that you have this huge transaction with this unexplained amount. And then they say our assets are very Russian. And to me, that screams that they took the payment offshore. It's just people think very linearly about how real estate transactions work. Because that's how they normally work. I send the money to your bank here. Your attorney says it's okay. You sign the paperwork and exchange things. And here's your keys, sir. But it just doesn't have to work that way. Isn't and that that's when, where these people are finding the loopholes. Isn't that when they started doing things involving individual sales of condos where they would sell multiple condos to people instead of you know doing a one big sale like this? I assume that this doesn't happen Well, they were selling day. condos. They were selling condos to people without identifying the end buyer, the beneficial end buyer. So what happens is when one LLC owns a condo, well, I can just sell my shares to you in Moscow <laughs> and you don't have to move the title of the condo anymore. So you've effectively created this asset that can be traded off the market. And that's the whole point. Like the, uh, I, I just feel like people that are looking at this that don't have real estate experience don't realize that it's not all linear like you close a home purchase. You could do things way outside the norm, and different states even have radically different ways of doing things. And New York in particular has a very exotic way of doing things that nobody else does anymore. It's very old school that would support this theory of how you do things. Like in New York, people show up to a real estate closing with cashier's checks and hand them across tables. Because that's what makes the deal finished. In Florida, we just send the money to our bankers or our attorneys and the deal is done. So I feel like there's a really good chance that Don Jr. herded the cash in 
That's that's what he went there to do. Even though they made a huge press release saying this is about Sochi and and you know building luxury product. How would they prove money laundering? Like it seems like a hard case. You know, I'm not sure if it would be conspiracy. Seems easier to prove than than money laundering in my mind. But is it intent? Like, do they have to prove? that they knew about it or, or anything along those lines, you know, and, and at the same time, it does this, is this something that, you know, Don Jr. can get indicted for and Donald, Donald Trump himself? Well, you know, it's hard to say without knowing all the facts, they'd have to have some knowledge of it. Although Craig Unger said that uh, willful blindness is enough to be culpable if they're doing these kind of transactions all the time. Um, but you have to think like, you know, it, it really depends on like, were they hiding the proceeds of the money? You know what I'm saying? Like, did the Trumps take the money and then not report it or put it in a foreign bank account that they don't report? Those kind of things. That's the kind of money laundering that you might expect on the Trump side. Assisting somebody in money laundering isn't always necessarily a crime. Um, although it probably is. It just, you know, there's a lot of nuance there. So why don't they have say, to find I mean, out? Why don't they have to find out where the source of the money comes from? I mean, I it, that seems like the the exact template for dark money in regards to super PACs. So an LLC can randomly donate. Nobody knows well, the owner of the LLC. And, there's because you know? there's no laws about that. In fact, the the financial uh, the FinCEN Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is part of the Treasury Department, it's their financial intelligence and crime enforcement wing. Um, FinCEN actually created an order that's in effect down here in South Florida now. Every transaction over a million dollars has to have an identified uh, beneficial owner. And the transactions dried up really, really quickly. Wow. Like they, they did it in phases and the Miami Herald reported that there was a 95% drop in these kind of transactions once they started with this geographic targeting order. And what, kind of, Dade, what kind of people, what kind of people launder money? What kind of people are, are are these people? Like, why are they? Why is the money dirty in the first place? Well, you know, some people, like I said, are, are it's capital flight. Uh, there are people like in Venezuela and Russia, and it's usually corruption. You know, they're siphoning off corruption cash from their home country and then bringing it here to get it away from their home government. Um, that's that's a very big money laundering business in South Florida, and that's something you know the Trumps are very active in South Florida real estate as far as their licensing deals. And, um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one last thing, which is that Bayrock was also involved in this in the sense that, you know, they were getting desperate for cash at the beginning of June in 2008. Don Jr. goes to this real estate conference, right? Uh, then at the end of two, uh, June, before the sale closes, Don Jr., and Ivanka held a out-of-town press conference in New York. It was for the international media. And this is something I've written about. They were both involved in the Trump Soho deal with Bayrock. Well, did you know that these guys were almost prosecuted under New York state law? Of course not. Well, I, I did well, because they... I read your, your article, but uh, most people <laughs> probably would not know that. Well, what most people really don't realize is that it was for what they did during this particular period of time. Uh, New York State has this law called the Martin Act, and it makes it a crime to make any false statement in connection with a security or the sale of a condo. 
or con- I think condo hotel, but actually they were selling condo hotel units. Those are also securities as well. So they kind of hit the, the law on both sides, but they lied. They actually lied about the percentage of units sold at the Trump Soho, a material lie. That's a material inducement to a buyer to say, well, we're almost sold because under the New York state condo law, if you have less than 15% sold, like your project can be revoked and you have to give all the deposits back, right? They were saying that there was above 50% sold, and in fact, it was like 15.8. So they were very close to the minimum. And that was at the same time. Like, all this is going on. The conference, the the lying press conference that nearly resulted in state charges and should have, but Cyrus Vance dropped them after a meeting with Jeff uh, Mark Kasowitz, Trump's longtime lawyer, who right. gave him multiple donations. And then... Suddenly, they close the big house and their money is denominated mostly in Russian. You know, their assets are mostly Russian. And at the end of it, they have this massive foreclosure. They need to fight it. And it seems like the amount of profit that Trump made on this one house would be just enough to pay the negative consequences of that loan default, which, in fact, you know, Mother Jones has reported. I spoke with Russ Shoma. Like, he owns that loan. And he says he pays himself. So there you have it. It's a mystery at the end of it, but that's a very, very straightforward timeline from June to November of 2008. Let's hope we get some answers. Uh, Grant, will you join me for part three of this investigation in Don Jr., which I believe will be my favorite part? Um, you know, can, you, can you allude to what's next or should we not tell people? Uh, we, you know what? We're going to be talking about Latvia. And we're going to be talking about the Trump-Russia dossier because there's a major confirmation of the dossier in Latvia. And then Don Jr. arrives soon afterwards. And we've got exclusive content that we have uncovered in the middle of the night, in the dark of night in our smoky back rooms. Uh, Grant and I dug up this this wonderful video, which is probably the most damning evidence unless there's, there's a video of... Uh, Don Jr. accepting cash payments. Uh, This is probably as good as it's going to get. So make sure you join us for part three. Grant Stern, thank you again for joining me on the Dworkin Report. Best producer in town. Thanks for having me, Scott. Talk to you soon. Grant Stern, everybody. I want to thank him for joining me today, especially for his help on this investigation into Donald Trump Jr., where we keep explaining his Russian ties. We will be back with part three, where we'll start in Latvia a former Soviet state that Donald Trump Jr. famously visited in 2012 for another paid speaking gig. This time to a bank who literally got caught writing a Russian-language money-laundering manual. You cannot make this stuff up. The next installment will start with the very first event in Christopher Steele's Trump-Russia dossier, and we promise to explain how the two are related in a way that you literally won't find anywhere else. That's next up on the third installment of the Trump Jr. Files. Be sure to visit our website at dworkinreport.com for more and check out the link in this story for the original report. Thanks again for listening. Onward!